Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about scenario-based games. We're talking about putting together games that have multiple scenarios that make up a larger story, a larger journey. We're talking to Sami Lakso from Snowdale Design. He's got a really cool game called Dawn of Peacemakers, this very, very interesting scenario-based game. Sami, welcome to the show. Hi, Gabe. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited. So I was actually, we were talking right before the show, I saw the uh, Rado run-through for your game, Dawn of Peacemakers, I don't know, a couple of days ago. And it's super intriguing, man. You've, you've really created an interesting game that's got all these different scenario kind of things going on. But uh, And I'm interested to talk to you more about that in just a minute. But just in case people have never heard about you, they don't know who you are, never heard of your company, give me kind of your quick bio. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? Yeah, so my first game was Dale of Merchants, which was also funded on, uh, on Kickstarter in 2015. And that was my first game that I really put all my thought into. Before that, it was just uh, kids' games when I was really small and stuff like that. But Dale of Merchants was my first first step into really ho- hobby games. And after that, uh, people re- really liked Dale of Merchants, so I obviously had to make more of that. So Dale of Merchants 2 came in 2016, and now I'm all about the, <laughs> my next game, Dawn of Peacemakers. Yeah, what's really cool is all three of your games are set in the same world. And so you've kind of got this very interesting universe that, that you're creating. But where are you from? Uh, I'm from Finland, and right now I'm living in Pori, which is on the uh, western coast. Yeah, and so what kind of games did you have growing up in Finland? Like, What were the games that you said, okay, this makes me want to design my own games? Uh, there's, of course, Monopoly, which I didn't play too much with my uh, family, but we have very much games from Ravensburger, like Muuttuva Labyrinthi, which is, in English, it's Transforming Labyrinth. I can't remember the name in English, but all kinds of games from Ravensburger, which I really like to play with my friends and family. Yeah, very cool. Now, what? tell me about the Finnish board game scene. What's it like over there as compared to the States or Germany or somewhere else? Uh, it's surprisingly really similar because almost all Finns can speak English. Mm. So pretty much all our hobby games are also in English. There are family games in uh, released in Finnish, but uh, when you go anything about that, we really play all games in English. So we play just the same games that everyone else does. Gotcha. Very cool, man. All right, so let's get into the topic Give me a good definition of a scenario-based game. Like, what is that exactly, as far as you know, your opinion? Well, the biggest thing for me is that uh, each scenario feels really different. So you can't say a game is a scenario-based, even if there are variable player powers or things like that that makes each play session different. But the setup and everything should really be extremely varied. And maybe even the winning conditions different from each other from scenario to scenario. Yeah, and so tell me a little bit more about your game. So is it there's you know this bigger story, this bigger tale that you're you're telling 
through the gameplay and like how many chapters or how many sections do you have and like what do you what do you what do you call those? Do you call them chapters? Uh, I I call them uh, scenarios okay. and uh, I have three scenarios together form a chapter and in the game there are four chapters in total and those form the whole campaign and each chapter has the scenarios happen uh, time wise uh, pretty much next to each other but there's a bit longer time period uh, flavor wise between each chapter yeah okay and so is it chronological or do you have flashbacks or how does your your how do your chapters play out time wise uh, it's uh, chronological, so each chapter will happen after the previous one. And there's uh, timestamps that you can follow through the whole campaign to see how how next they are to each other and how much time passes between each scenario. Yeah, but have you played around with other kinds of scenarios as far as like having some scenarios that aren't really... Uh, in, the, in the big story, they're just kind of separate or apart, almost like bonus round or bonus scenarios have you done any of that the interesting thing is that when i first started working on my game the scenarios were each standalone scenarios and you could play any of them in any order you wish but later i decided that i really want a really a story arc that goes from scenario to scenario which form a bigger story than i could if the scenarios could be played in different orders and I could also teach the player how to play the game as they, as I know which order they are going to play each scenario. Yeah, that's a really good point. I want to I want to come back to that in just a minute when we talk about the complexity of these games. But why in the world did you create a scenario-based game in the first place? I mean, the other you know merchants uh, game, Dale of Merchants, they were kind of more economic, where you're you know resources and different things. And so, what made you want to create a somewhat? It's a, it's a war game, kind of, but you're not. At war, you're the ones trying to bring peace, which is a super interesting uh, concept. But what made you want to make a scenario-based game? Well, as you already told, the main premise is that there are two warring factions, two warring sides, and your objective is to make truce, to make peace with, between those as you are the peacemaker. And it's really, everything is based on that premise, that theme of the game. And the thing is that no war is stopped in a single fight, even if the troops withdraw, and that really needed multiple games to really evolve the story from two sides warring against each other all the way to maybe ho- hopefully bring peace between those. So it really needed multiple games in order to tell the story. Yeah, so where did the idea for this game come from? As far as like you, you had these races of you know these different animals that were you know that were merchants, and so like where did you get the idea to say hey let's let's have a war and let's figure out how to do this like where did that idea come from? I really wanted to make something big and grandiose after my relatively small card game, and the first thing was that there's really many uh, war games out there, and I don't want to make something that's out there already. How about turning that? idea upside down how about making a war game where the objective is actually stop the war and everything just came from that idea yeah so tell me a little bit more about the mechanics like how does that work because in a normal game a war game you've got dice or you've got cards and i do more damage than you or i have more attack than your defense and i you know all these things 
but you're doing a peace game. And so how does that work? How do I, how do I bring peace between these warring factions? Yeah, so as I had the idea that you, have, you bring peace between two sides, the first thing was that you can't really be ordering the sides by yourself if you want to bring peace between them because that's not what the warring sides want to do. So I had to come up with how uh, mechanisms, how those sides war against each other before I even could think how do you affect those warring sides. So I came up with uh, artificial intelligent decks. So we call them order decks and those will form orders for those armies and all the units in those armies will be commanded by those orders and they tell when they will attack, which way they will move and things like that. Gotcha. So each each army has a deck of its own and you turn over that card and it tells the game, basically says, this is what this side does, right? Yep, correct. And that was the first thing. But later on, I actually doubled the number of decks for both sides. So there are two decks for both sides, which bring really interesting things out. Because in addition that they're attacking, they're maybe even moving at the same turn. Or if they're attacking, maybe they're dealing double damage or something like that. So the situations that bring out when we have two decks per side instead of one, uh, really escalated and made a lot more varied gameplay. Right. Now, if I remember correctly, after watching Rado's run-through, so as the players are really trying to manipulate those decks and do different things so that the armies don't kill each other, right, and then that you're trying to get to a certain point where they, you know, maybe run away or they get to a point where they're like, all right, we're not going to fight anymore. Am, am I remembering that right? Yep. So both sides have also motivation, which the higher it is, the less likely is that that side is ready to surrender or make throughs. And when they are nearly ready to surrender, that's when uh, they are ready to make also throughs between the other side if they are also at the same low level. So your objective is to lower both sides' motivation to continue the war to almost non-existent, at which point they will make the throughs. And you have resources which you can use to manipulate the war in your favor. On one turn, you might be helping the ocelots out they are losing, but if you help them too much, then you maybe jump to the other side and help the macaws after that. And yeah, so you have to kind of balance balance out what you're what you're doing and who you help and who you hurt and all that. It's very very cool. Again, like you said, it's it's taking the war game and putting it on its head. But what were some of the the main challenges you faced in trying to make this? Not only a board game, just I mean, it's hard enough just to make a good board game. But you were trying to make a board game that was a scenario game, so it's got multiple pieces going on, you know, multiple things to worry about. What were some of the biggest challenges? Yeah, the single most biggest challenge was to make the actual artificial intelligence war against each other such a way that they make uh, interesting situations. Because if that if those sides warring against each other without any player interaction, it would be boring. Uh, anything that you would do to those would pretty much also be boring. So they would have to be able to make surprises and to really keep players on their toes. So when I got that done, only after that part, I really jumped into making, uh, thinking about how players interact with those sites and how they manipulate those decks and what uh, resources I give them to do so. Yeah, now did you have a game first or did you start with a story first? 
as far as like when you were really beginning the design process? The first thing was the idea for the theme of the game. So players making peace between two sides. And after that, I developed the game around the game engine. So to call about how, how to handle that. And after that, I started developing the story campaign and scenarios. Yeah, and how did you decide three scenarios in a chapter? Like, was there a lot of trial and error? Or how did you, you know, figure that system out? Earlier, we had 10 total scenarios. And they were really based mostly ar around mechanisms. But then when we started really thinking about how to tie these together story-wise, it uh, naturally developed in a way that there are three uh, in each chapter. And then there's a bigger break which also gives us more freedom to start each chapter in a way that we really want to and doesn't really matter how the previous maybe ended and we can still start kind of fresh and tell the, sto the story in a way that makes sense for players yeah now i remember my first scenario based game was actually mice and mystics from way back when and it would have this really, not super long, but, you know, page or two pages of text and kind of the setup of the, what's happening and what happened in between chapters and all that. Is that what you did for Dawn of Peacemakers? It, it's not identical because I have not that much story before, before and after. There's like few paragraphs. The, I, I try to give players the feel, feel of the world through those uh, story texts and give a bit more before the first scenario so you really get to know the world and why you are doing what you're doing but then it's m more that i want to give players small reasons why they're doing the things in each given scenario and then really get players free to do tell their own stories during the game why they're doing the exact thing that they did on their turn and how, why they didn't do something else with the resources that they were given so it's more that I give the setting for players and then they can tell their own stories in the world. Yeah, that's a really cool way to do it. So many games, they tell you, here's the story, put these things on all these places, go kill them, and then we'll move on to the next. You know, it's, so the, the game is not really telling you a story. There's like a, the manual is telling you the story and then you just get to live out the little battle scenes or whatever. But you're saying your game is a little more emergent. The storytelling is a little more emergent out of the actual gameplay. Yeah, we... Just try to give you the premise why you're doing what you're doing. And then based on how the scenario ends, there are multiple different stories that you only read one of those depending on how your own game ended. And then you can you can really concentrate on telling your own story during and afterwards. Very cool. Now, how long did this game take to come together? How long were you working on it? I had the first idea for the game like over two years ago. Mm -hmm. And then it was on the back of my mind and I sometimes pulled it on the table and worked a bit on it for like a year. But for uh, after that, it has been pretty much one full year that I have full-time work on this game. Yeah, it just takes forever. Now, is one big part of that time, uh, you know, timeline, the playtesting, did playtesting just take forever? That surely take for, took forever. Yeah. And one challenge was also with, this kind of uh, campaign game, you can really get only one uh, playthrough from each group of players because after that they have already pl played the game, they have already seen the scenario, they have already experienced the surprises that the game will offer them. And then, yes, uh, uh, even I, when the game is replayable and you can play it again, I can play test that with myself. But 
to give the first reaction from players that's really important and that can I can only get once from each each group of players so it's what's uh, switching out players and each of them playing the full campaign and making changes and then new new group of players and then they will play the full campaign and it, it, it took really long time yeah how long in general uh, give me a good good estimate uh it took uh, like four to five months or something like that and there were multiple game groups playing at the same time and yeah now one thing that's really cool about your game that probably elongated the playtesting time is you've got some interesting like legacy style elements where you've got you know players opening boxes and opening up packages and things that you you can't like like you're saying once you see that you can't unsee it you can't go back and play the game and and not you know not know what's coming and so tell me about some of the legacy style elements that you put in the game yeah so i really like legacy games myself but there are certain parts from those that i not, I'm not so keen on, for example, the destroying components and not being able to play an awesome game after you have finished the campaign, even if you want to play, play it more. So I try to incorporate, uh, I try to take the best parts that I like the most from legacy games and place those in Dawn of Peacemakers. So, for example, there are multiple decks that you will unlock when you play the game, and there are all kinds of new mechanisms and surprises and things that you will unlock when you play it and speaking about playtesting those it's really hard when you only get one shot with the rule book with each group because if someone opens the wrong packet at the wrong time or they took the wrong card at the wrong time you just need to know just need to analyze why they did that and then try to change the rule a tiny bit for the next group and see if they do it correctly yeah and you only get one shot at that uh, let's talk about replayability because I imagine that could be a huge challenge with scenario games. I remember, you know, I've played scenario games in the past where after losing a certain scenario a couple times and like just really not wanting to play it again and going, you know what, let's just move on to the next one. Let's not worry about it. We'll just move on. And so how do you kind of find that balance of challenging players enough but then also not challenging to the point where they get frustrated because they can't beat a scenario, right? And, and like, how do you deal with the p- replayability? For my game, the campaign goes from 1 to 12 scenarios, and you only play each scenario once. It doesn't matter if you win or lose, you still continue on. So if you lose a certain scenario after the full campaign, you might want to try to challenge yourself again and win it on the ne- on the next try. And there are also some things that you unlock later in the campaign that you can use in the earlier scenarios if, to- if you choose to replay any of those scenarios or even the full campaign again so i don't want to uh, penalize players too much for losing the any given scenario because they always can move on to the next one yeah so do you have branching paths like if i win i have to go this path if i lose i go this path like maybe i open up a different box or I open up a different deck or something like that there's a tiny bit of, of that but mostly it's just uh, one continuous line from one to twelve but your actions will have consequences in the later scenarios. So, for example, if any given leader from a side is dead, well, they're gone and they're not coming back, and that can really affect the following scenarios. Gotcha. Now let's go back to playtesting. When you were putting together groups of playtesters, or you know, even just getting your friends together, whatever, would you go through the whole campaign? Like, how did you how did you do that process? Because did you go one through twelve, or did you do 
we're going to play this can this scenario over and over and over again and get it right, and then we'll move on to the next one. Like, what would you do? Each group of players played the scenarios in order from one to twelve, and I made always changes on those scenarios after they played. But the same group didn't play the same scenario again because then they would get too good in the game for the next scenario because they would get more practice than players would usually get when they play the campaign. So I really didn't want to use the same players too much on the same scenarios. After they have played the full campaign, then I'm free to play again scenarios with them if I want to. But the best feedback I get is from fresh players playing each scenario only once because that's the case when players will buy the game and start playing it they will play the, the crit most critical part is is when they play the scenario for the first time so did you have the full story and everything you know pretty much done or pretty much prototyped and all that when you went into play testing like were players able to go one to twelve right off the bat or did you have one to three at first and then added you know four five six later how did that work <laughs> that, that's a funny question because the first group of players they played first scenario. Then I, before I invited them to play the next, I created the next scenario. After they played the second, I invited them after I created the third. So I created the scenarios as the first group was going because I all, always I got better and better designing those scenarios. If I would have designed all of them at once before playtesting them, they wouldn't be as good as they are now. Yeah, okay, very cool, man. All right, so let's talk about setup. Because this is another thing I, I imagine scenario-based games can struggle with, can be a big challenge. How do you kind of mitigate, you know, the whole? All right, I want this game to be complex, and I want you know players to have lots of decisions and choices, but I also don't want the setup time for each scenario to take an hour. So how did you kind of find that balance of setup time doesn't take too long, but yet there's still real cool stuff going on? So one thing about setup that really really helps the game is if the insert is any good. So you can have designated spots for each, each deck and each, each style and stuff like that. So you can really pull out the thing that you're looking for faster. And another thing is that uh, each scenario, it, the setup is, uh, is on a single page, uh, in single spread of the rulebook, and you can lay it down on the table, and then you can share jobs with players. One, for example, building the AI decks, the order decks, and one player, for example, building the terrain on the game board. So you can divide tasks really easily that way. Yeah, very cool. Do you have any other advice as far as graphic design or the rule book or anything like that to help setup go faster? You really need to do a version, a draft for the setup, and see players using that draft to build the setup. And then if they struggle with any part, you try to make that better and try again. If they still struggle, Try it, making it even better and try a different approach. For example, there, there were like five to ten different versions for me for a craft how the players should build those order decks. And only the final version is pretty much perfect. Player, players understand it fast and they can uh, build the decks fast when they start the game and they can refer to those during game fast. I didn't have all of those before I really came up with the thing that worked for my game. Yeah, I can see how this is a great great time where in playtesting, 
don't do it yourself. Like make sure the players are doing the setup. You know, give them what you hope to be the you know what's going to be in the rule book, and say, hey, I'm not going to tell you anything. You have to figure this out. And then just take notes on what they screw up and what they get right. And then I think, you know, because a lot of times as designers, we want to set the game up because we want to do it as fast as possible, you know, and get it all out there because we want to get into the playing. But when these kind of games, you can't do that because you're not going to be able to do that when somebody gets the game home. And so you really, because the, these scenarios have to be set up correctly because if they're not, the game's not going to play right. Uh, and so that's that's super important. Did you find did you find yourself ever having to go like, oh, don't do that, like, ah, oh, quit screwing it up, you know, when the players are setting up the game wrong? Yeah, this was also done in steps. So the first play group was that when they came to play test, I had already set up the game for them because I would make radical changes after they play. So I didn't really want to make the setup changes multiple times after afterwards. But for the later playing groups, they would set up the game by themselves. And after they had set up the game fully, then I check if it's correct and if it was uh, if there were any mistakes, then I would simply correct those mistakes and write down what those were and try to make it better for the next group. Because if if they make a mistake in the setup I, and I don't correct it, then the game that they play afterwards, it, I can't count it too much on that because there there were maybe different wrong cards in World Rex or some some card was missing out or there were too many cards or unit was on the wrong place. So the feedback that I would get from the gameplay that they were playing would be also incorrect. Yeah, you, you really kind of need two phases of the playtesting session. You need the setup phase. And then if they don't do that right, once you go into the actual testing phase, you as the designer need to set it up correctly. That way you get the right data that you're looking for. Yeah. It's very interesting. Now, what were some of the games that you looked at as far as like inspiration? Did you look at Descent or Mice and Mystics, like some of these other scenario-based games? Any of those that you were playing or really taking ideas from? One game that I was playing was uh, Star Wars Imperial Assault, mm -hmm. and that had also scenarios on it, on it. So I looked at how, how they made it and what things I didn't like in that one and what, what I could make better in my, my game. And after I had the game engine and most of the scenarios done but still honing down the graphic design I also got Max versus Minions which is uh, similar on some parts and I also looked at how how that game does the setup and how I can maybe learn from that game. Yeah so what were some of the things that you learned from? You know what are some of the ideas that you were like oh I really like this and borrowed? One of the biggest single ideas was uh, index booklet so it's a separate booklet from the campaign booklet, and it has all rules of the game in it. So if there are, for example, some keyword that you can't quite remember what it does, you don't need to try to remember was it introduced in scenario two or three or maybe four. You can just look at the index and see it. Oh, it's on page 14, and then you can read it there. And you can keep the campaign booklet open on the uh, spread that has the, your current scenario. You can have that open on the table all the time. You never need to flip through that campaign booklet to try and look up a rule. Yeah, I think anything you can do to make a game easier to reference the rule book, make it easier to find things that players are going to need. I think anytime you can do that, it, it makes the game better. Any other things as far as like mechanics or the setup or anything like that you learned from some of these other games that you thought were really good ideas? One one thing was that the setup on all of those campaign games all always have really big image of the setup of the tiles of the units and all, all everything on the table 
that that's one thing that I really like on all of those games, and I of, of course <laughs> wanted to add it to my game too. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about some of the advantages of creating a a campaign game or a scenario-based game. What are some of the biggest things you found that you were able to do in this style of game that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do if this was just a kind of one-off, you know, normal board game? I can really ramp up the complexity of the game during the campaign because I'm teaching the game the, during during the scenarios. So the whole campaign is kind of like a huge tutorial so it's always telling you new new tiny things that you can do and what what can happen and things like that and if i would start off with the last scenario with new players there would be way too much stuff at once thrown at them but after you have introduced them one by one in the scenarios players have time to get familiar with it and they are really ready for the challenge yeah, I think this is the biggest advantage for a scenario-based game. You don't, you don't have to throw everything at a player right off the bat. You can, you can ramp up that complexity. Like you said, you can start with game one being kind of a, uh, a simplified, very, very simplified version. And as long as it's still fun, that's the thing. Don't simplify it down to where it's not fun anymore, but the fun part. And then add rules, add mechanics. In your case, you add components. You add different you know, cars, different things come you know, as you open those packages and all that, which is really cool. And you get to kind of build the game as you go and that's maybe something for designers out there listening right now that you've got a huge like overwhelming game that's got tons of moving parts and tons of complexity to it maybe think about making it more of a scenario based game where you can add that stuff as you go as opposed to trying to give a player a 50 page rule book from the beginning give them a 20 page rule book and let them figure things out at first and then add to it along the way now when you were doing that did you how much trial and error like was that a lot of just play testing and figuring out what to add and when to add it? Yeah, it was really trial trial and error because the first scenario, after pretty much after each group of players, I made it simple, more, more simple. And after the next group, there was too much going on, and I turned it down so much that for myself it's really really simple and even maybe boring. But for new players, there's still so much stuff that there are still really engaged in the game and it's really important to get new eyes on your game all the time because the playtesters who have played the game multiple times even they may say that the first scenario is boring if they play it after they have played the full campaign but it's not the feedback that you want from those players for the first scenario you want the feedback from fresh players for the first scenario yeah that's great advice it's that whole curse of knowledge you know the more you know the more you forget that other people don't know and you kind of assume that they're going to do things or understand things the way that you do or the way that other people who've been playing your game for a month, you know, understand things and they're not, they're not going to have any idea at all. And so, like you said, it's really good. Uh, It's super important to have people that have never seen your game, don't know anything about it and get their eyes on it to, to see what, what their reaction is. Now, any other advantages that you noticed in this style of game? Well, one, one obvious way was that there were, some parts of the game are really unlocked later in this uh, in this campaign. Some of those parts I, are my favorite parts of that of of Dawn of Peacemakers, mm-hmm. and those are the parts that you can use even in the first scenarios if you choose to replay the campaign. But those are also the parts that are too much if you're playing the game for the first time. So that's why I really wanted players 
to be able to use those parts even in the first ones if they want to replay the campaign because those are my favorite parts and I hope other players will like those too. Yeah, so let's talk about the advantage of storytelling. You know, we, we, we were talking earlier before we started the show about uh, how you can tell a pretty grand story through, you know, scenarios because you're not having to do it all in one hour session. You can do, you know, multiple sessions. And so what kind of advantages did you notice when you were putting together the story for the whole thing that the scenario-based game just really made it possible to kind of tell the story that you wanted to tell? One of those is that players can get really attached to the characters of the game. So if there are, for example, those unique leaders that I talked earlier that can die and in case they won't be coming back, players can, when they see the same character in multiple scenarios, they really want to protect protect him at certain points from dying because after that they wouldn't be able to see that guy anymore. So deaths of those uh, characters really are meaningful in the game instead of if it's a one-off uh, it doesn't matter if the guy is dead. He's coming back on for the next game anyway. Yeah, I've heard people say the same kind of thing with Pandemic Legacy. And now Legacy, uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 2 is you get so attached to your character that if something happens to him, you feel it. Like it really, it, it hurts that, to have that guy that you've been, you know, uh, using for the last six games or whatever. And now he's dead. And it's like, oh, and it's a lot more impactful than if you're just playing one game. And it's like, oh, well, he died. Who cares? And so, yeah, you can get more player buy-in, more player engagement. As far as the story goes, like how did you how did you connect each story like in the scenario? Like what challenges did you find there? Because that's a huge advantage to be able to kind of tell you know have multiple chapters. But how did you do that effectively? Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges when creating a campaign with scenarios is that how do you actually link those scenarios together if players have a lot of power on how they will end? So if one side totally outnumbers the other and wins the scenario. How do you continue the second one without splitting the timeline? Because if I choose to split the timeline, then there's like 4,000 scenarios that I have to play test or something, some crazy number, and I would never be able to really balance those out. So I instead I choose to go with a more linear approach where you play each scenario, and that way I can really balance all of those and be really entertaining so one one of those ways was the chapters which give more time between each between the chapters so there's we are more free to do whatever we want in at the start of each chapter and we can also end each chapter in a more radical way if we want to okay so you're saying the in between chapters is actually kind of a longer stretch of time then it's not like the next day. It's like, hey, a large amount of time has gone by and then you go into the next scenario? Yeah, and also there's a map that shows where you're located in any given scenario. So all scenarios with the same chapter happen relatively close to each other. And after you move to the next chapter, you're moving quite a lot further away and maybe a month or two have passed. So we can really start kind of small, fresh start from there while still respecting some of the decisions that players had done in the previous ones. Yeah, all right, so tell me about that. Tell me how, what are some of those ways that the game respects those decisions? Like, how do you bring those decisions, you know, to come out later? Yeah, so the one that I already mentioned is that the loss of leaders. If one is dead, he's not coming back. And we leverage that in different ways 
So, for example, there might be certain setups in any scenario based on if a certain leader is alive or not. And we are, of course, not telling people those uh, triggers before they actually happen. So then you're, you're surprised because some leaders might be more important than others. Cool, man. That's awesome. All right, so let's talk about how you create an experience because I think that's another advantage of these games. You can create more of an experience, more of a world. You can make things a little more, uh, come to life a little bit more than if it's just some one-off game. So what are some of the ways that you, you've worked to create the experience of Dawn of Peacemakers? Like to the point where players feel like, yeah, this is like a real world. This could be real, even though we know it's not, but you got that verisimilitude where people think this, is, this could be a real, real world. How did you do that? Yeah, so one of those ways is to try to give players as much information as the characters that they're playing. So, for example, the play, uh, characters are on the battlefield because uh, of a certain person who had sent them letters. And players will actually be able to read those letters before they start the game. So they are pretty much uh, on the same line as the characters themselves in the game. So you can really immerse yourself and even role play if you're that kind of player. And one of the other things is that by using a campaign with scenarios, I can build up things from scenario to scenario and really have a lot of control on when certain things happen. So if there would be only one game, it would be really hard to build up things for something else. But when I have multiple games that I know that they're playing in certain order, I can build up things and have the surprises happen at the correct times, which is also which I really needed to hone down with different groups. So I moved something earlier and maybe pushed something later based on feedback. Right. Now, any other advantages that you noticed with creating this type of game? Uh, One obvious one, of course, is the world that you can give so much more information if you're playing multiple games in a campaign. Because if there's only one game, there's quite a limited amount of stuff that you can tell players before they get bored. But when there's a campaign, you can tell small bits here and there that will make the world more rich and players will have easier time immersing themselves in it. Right. Very cool. All right. So I mean, what, what advice would you give somebody who right now they're thinking about, you know, creating a campaign, you know, scenario based game, or they're wanting to, or maybe they never thought about it until today. And they're like, Oh, maybe I could do that. What advice would you give to those people? Well, the biggest advice is that you really need multiple groups of players to test the game out if, if you're ready for the challenge. But it's, a, it's also really satisfying when you co- have same groups of players completing the campaign and then you can imagine how, how players would act in the same way when they play it. And the advice I would give is that you should really think about the pacing that you're revealing stuff both thematically and uh, by mechanisms. So you really need to think about the pacing when when you introduce stuff and how long do you wait until you introduce the next next thing and hone that down by playing with multiple groups of players. Yeah, so do you have any advice on that more specifically as far as the pacing? Anything you found or maybe you thought, hey, I really want to add this next uh, me- mechanism next game, but you had to wait a little while for the players to really be comfortable with it, something like that. 
when you think that players are ready for new mechanisms, push it back by one game. <laughs> because whatever you, you think is good, you have played the game so much that it's probably better to wait one more game. <laughs> Right, and again, we go, we're go. we back into the playtesting and how important that is. Yeah. And especially, like you said, playtesting with new groups and people that have never seen the game or played the game before. Awesome. Sami, really appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round where Sami's going to talk about advice for making family-friendly art. Sami does all the art for his games, and, and they look really good. And so he, he knows what he's talking about there, and, and all the games have this really uh, interesting style that's very family-friendly, but there's, you know, but it's not a... Uh, simple game it's not a kids game but it still appeals to families but real quick donna peacemakers is still on kickstarter right now do you want to say anything about that and uh, maybe kind of give a little last last minute pitch to people yep so the game launched on kickstarter a few weeks ago and if you want to learn more you can uh, should i give the say the link or and i think if you just look for dawn of peacemakers on kickstarter the search it'll it'll come up yeah, so if you search uh, Kickstarter for Dawn of Peaks makers, you can find a lot of more information, playthroughs, previews, vi- uh, videos, images of the miniatures, and everything like that. Yeah, and I also I'll put the link on the Board Game Design Lab website as well. So if you want to check that out, you can go to boardgamedesignlab.com, and the link will be in the show notes for this episode. And like I said, looking at the uh, the run throughs Rado did and the playthroughs and all that. Super interesting game, a lot of very interesting mechanisms, and it's a war game, but you're trying to stop the war. So it's taking the war game and putting it on its head. It's a really cool concept. So that sounds like something you're interested in. I highly recommend you check it out. All right, so Sami, really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with everything you got going on right now. Yep, th- thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?